1: and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror thank you for listening and enjoy the show it's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark Join tales for dark nights Ah. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about familial frights, occult encounters, and devilish dews. I'm Steve Taylor. Tonight, I'll be your host as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your wildest imaginations. Joining us tonight to help bring our frightening fiction to life are voice actors Jordan Lester, Dejan Lesmond, and Jonathan West. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself. It's time to Turn off the lights and turn on the dark. (laughs) Our first tale tonight is brought to us courtesy of author Andrew Pendragon and is voiced by Jordan Lester. In this story, we follow a little girl as she seeks out the truth in spite of her father about just what is really going on in the dark recesses of their farm. Without further ado, I present to you, Daddy's Girl.
2: After Mama got sick, Daddy didn't act the same. He'd go off into their room and not come out for days. I was just 13 at that time, but Daddy said I was big and needed to take care of things. I liked feeling responsible. Back then, it was just me, Sarah Beth, and baby Junie, and Junie wasn't much more than nine months old. She still wanted the teat, but with mama come sick and all since Junie was born, she had to suckle on one of the mama pigs we had left. We called her Kicker, cause she would always try to kick baby Junie away when she would try to drink, but after a while Kicker got used to it and would show off her pink belly as soon as she saw Junie come round. Maybe even thought that Junie was her own piglet since Kicker's litter was so small that year. Once, Sarah Beth tried to drink some of Kicker's milk, too. She said it was sour, so I never had none of it. We lived on a modest hog farm out in the middle of nowhere, with not much more than a winter barn for the pigs and a rickety house turned all gray from the sun. The ground wasn't good for plowing, but Daddy had tried up until all the grass died out and the trees started to shrivel. We never saw nobody neither, but Daddy told us there used to be a lot of people living out that ways before we were born. Me and Sarah Beth would run around the farm, naming all the pigs and smacking them into something fierce. They would howl and squeal. Daddy didn't like that, though. He took out his gun once. When we started having to take care of baby Junie, we would bring her into the pig pen too. She was too little to talk, but we would ask her to say their names. "'That one's named Big Ed, Junie,' we said. "'Can you say Big Ed?' we said. "'Sarah Beth always tried to name one America, "'but I always told her that you can't rightly name a pig something like that "'lest you were just asking for someone to get confused.' "'Then Sarah Beth would oink like a sure hog "'and we would fall in the mud and laugh our cheeks red. "'She looked just like Mama when she smiled, right down to the gums.' "'Most of the time, life on the farm was pretty easy, I'd say.' Every morning at the crack of dawn, me and Sarah Beth would go down and put some more wood on the stove so the house would stay nice and warm. That's the way Mama liked it, Daddy would say. We'd eat something small and watch the fire crackle in the pot belly, the hungry tongue slapping across the grain like a horse on a salt block. Then we would go get baby Junie and take her down to get her milk. She would always squint and grin up to her nose at the sun when we walked out. She would clap her hand on her belly and laugh when we played with her special arm. It was smaller than the other one and didn't work too right neither. Even though Daddy said that baby Junie didn't have to drink milk no more, we would still take her to kick her. It was fun to get her used to all the pigs, since there wasn't much else to do, but Daddy insisted we started giving her solid food. So we'd soften up some bread and water and pop it into Junie's mouth. I thought she wouldn't be too happy with it, but she always ate her plate empty. When we got done eating, we'd go out and water all the pigs from some old pump Daddy said his Daddy had dug down. You'd have to wait for the mud to clear from it before you could put your bucket under, or else you'd have to make more trips to get good drinking water. That's what I hated. Having to walk back and forth between the pump and the pig pen was always my least favorite part. After a while, the pump stopped giving so much water, though, and I didn't have to walk so much. That was nice, but a couple of the pigs died. Sarah Beth cried for a whole day. Most of our chores were keeping care of the pigs, So once that was done, me and Sarah Beth could do whatever we wanted until dinner. I always liked playing inside, and was good at convincing Sarah Beth to play what I wanted. Go hide and I'll count, I'd say, and she would swing her little legs as fast as she could get away. One day I thought I heard her go out the front door, and I had told her that that was against the rules. Sarah Beth! I yelled, you better not be cheating! I heard a girl scream, and I thought that maybe she had tripped or something, so I ran out to go find her. I searched forever looking for her, in the barn and in all the pens. Even though Daddy had told me not to, I started checking around the woods. Just as I thought about giving up, I found another one of the pigs outside its pen. Something had cut into it good. It didn't have a head, and all its insides were on the outside in a ring of innards around the corpse like a Christmas wreath around a ham. I went back in the house to tell Daddy like he said I should. When I walked in, I saw Daddy carrying Sarah Beth out of Mama's room. She was bawling and crying her little eyes out, and Daddy gave her several whoops on the face with a tattered boot for going in there. He put her in the basement for a little while to learn her a lesson. I told Daddy about the pig when he got done locking the door. "'Another one of the pigs got out,' I told him. "'It did?' "'Yeah, something really got into it, Daddy. Pulled its insides all around.' "'It will be gone in the morning, honey. Thanks for telling me. That's why you're my big girl.' I loved Daddy back then. How long is Sarah Beth going to be down there this time? Long time. She never learned like you did, baby girl. She just misses Mama, I think. We all miss Mama. Is she feeling any better, Daddy? You know not to ask about Mama, baby girl. There was another shriek coming from outside. Daddy sighed and unlocked the basement. How about you get Junie? I didn't like the basement. I learned Daddy's lessons early, so I wouldn't have to go down there. It's dark down there, Daddy. Can I stay up here with you? I remember smelling something right foul come off his chest and from the cracked door to his room. Go get your sister, he snapped. So I did, and me, Sarah Beth, and baby Junie stayed in the basement until Daddy said it was alright to come on back out. While we were down there, I could hear Sarah Beth still sniffling and whining. "'Why you gotta do stuff like that, Sarah Beth? Stuff that Daddy tells you not to do!' "'I saw Mama. She looked like a scarecrow.' "'I really wanted to ask. Not for me, but for Junie. I was real worried that she would never get to know her mother, but Daddy said to never ask about Mama, so that's what I did.' "'That's why Daddy licks ya. He says you never learn your lessons.' I could hear her wipe her nose on her sundress. Maybe. We heard more screaming from upstairs, heard something bust on the floor, heard daddy curse. It lasted for a couple of hours. There was always a lot of commotion when we went into the basement, and baby Junie started crying up a storm. I had to tell Sarah Beth not to hold the baby's mouth shut because she couldn't breathe. We didn't like when Junie started crying because it took her a long time to stop. She's probably hungry, I said. I popped my finger in our baby's mouth and she pecked on it trying for some milk. "'She thinks it's Kicker,' I tried to tell Sarah Beth, but she wasn't paying attention. "'She walked along the wall, running her fingers against the shelves of mason jars. "'You couldn't tell because of how dark it was, but Daddy kept a lot of preserves down there. "'Fruit like canned pears and peaches and apples, some tomatoes and onions, too. "'There were also stacks of tubs filled with beans and rice lining the walls, but mice had done chewed into a couple of those. "'They even got into Dougie's old box of toys.' and I always wondered what they needed with a bunch of dusty tractors and things. Dougie didn't need them anymore, I guess. Daddy said he wouldn't be coming back. The preserves were safe, though, and sometimes I'd go into the basement, looking at their different colors and thinking about what they tasted like. I liked knowing most of the jars were still full. When Daddy let us out of the basement, it was already almost daytime, and he said he would take care of our chores that day. When he tucked me into bed, he had already bandaged a couple wounds on his arms and hands. He had a black eye. "'They hurt, Daddy?' "'Now don't worry about that, baby. Did Sarah Beth remember to latch the pen today?' I nodded. "'Good. You gotta keep an eye on her. She's not careful like you are.' Daddy didn't tuck in Sarah Beth that night. I'm not sure she wouldn't have wanted him to, neither. She always got real cold when Daddy beat her, and as soon as he left the room, she was up looking out the window. Daddy will whoop you again if he sees you up. She didn't say anything for a while, just standing with the morning sun on her face, looking real intent at something. I just had to know. Because I saw what got to that pig last. It looked just like Mama. Don't tell lies, Sarah Beth. I know what i seen. Recently, she was always making up those kinds of stories. I went to sleep without saying another word. The next morning, I noticed that Junie didn't look too good. She turned real pale and didn't want to eat. I tried to ask Daddy what we should do, but he was in his room taking care of Mama and said that he was busy. All the chores were already done, and Sarah Beth was still sore from the day before. She didn't want to play. So me and baby Junie went for a walk, because I thought it might make her feel a little better to get some fresh air and see the pigs. We were walking to the pen when Junie started crying, and she threw up. "'It's all right, Junebug,' I said, and I'd pat that poor angel on the back. She was as gray as a ghost, but we kept walking. Around the corner of the pen, we could see into Daddy's room. He left the window open that day, probably so Mama could get some fresh air, too. It was cool, and a nice summer day for that kind of thing. Me and Junie could see Daddy doing something inside, and he'd pop in front of the window now and again. I'd point at him with Junie's special hand and say, "'There's Daddy, Junie!' What's he doing, Junie? I'd tell her how hard of a worker Daddy was, and how him and Mama used to dance in the kitchen before she got sick. I told her how Mama used to make pie, how she would mush up the butter and flour in a bowl, how she would can her own fillings, how she would always let me and Sarah Beth lick the spoon when she got done smoothing out the fruit. I told her how Daddy said to not get into any of the cans, so Mama would have something to bake with when she got better. Junie didn't seem like she cared all that much, though. She just closed her little blue eyes and went right to a nap. There wasn't much to do with the pigs since Junie was asleep, so I went and got a blanket from the house and put it into one of the troughs to make a little crib. I laid her down, and she looked just like baby Jesus from the picture books. A couple of the pigs came by and snorted at her real gentle-like, and I was sure she'd feel straight as a maple once she got a little rest. Junie was such a sweet little pea, but Daddy didn't seem to take to her that much. I always wondered why. She didn't ever do anything wrong, not like Sarah Beth did. Once I heard Daddy say that it was Junie's fault for making Mama sick. He said that Junie was a bad baby, but I didn't believe that. I always thought that Mama would be real proud of all of us when she got better. Even Sarah Beth. I was kicking rocks into the woods, thinking about all that stuff. Seemed like the forest got closer and closer each year, all those yellow trees bowing down towards the house. Sometimes in the spring, they would have leaves the size of your hand, and Daddy used to put them in between the pages of a book and scratch them up with a crayon. When he got done doing that with a bunch of them, he put them all up on the wall. Trees used to look like that, he'd say, used to be full of leaves and flowers. I didn't know what flowers looked like, except what Daddy would draw up for me. He said the world wasn't a place for beautiful things anymore, said that's why me and Sarah Beth couldn't play in the woods. That's where all the flowers went, Daddy? The woods? I'd ask, and he'd always say, Something like that, baby girl. Just then, I heard Daddy yelling up something awful, and wouldn't you believe it, Sarah Beth done and tried to get into Mama's room again. I walked in the living room just in time to see him lick her across the jaw. Daddy had her by the hair and opened up the Bible that he always kept on the coffee table, its pages falling apart like flakes of yellow paint. He pushed her face right down in the pages like you do with a dog when it has an accident in the house. God don't like little girls who don't obey Sarah Beth. Sends them right to hell. He hit her face on the good books so rough the glass underneath cracked and splintered all over the tight-knit rug below. You want to go to hell? Sarah Beth was trying to not step in any of the glass. No, Daddy. Her head was already bleeding. No? They used to kill girls with big old rocks when they were bad. Do you want that? No, Daddy. He dragged her to the basement threw her down the steps. I could hear her gasping for wind when she hit the bottom. Slamming the deadbolt shut, he spun around me with a fire in his eyes. What do I always say about Mama's room? I could see a tooth on top of the broken bits of the table. To not go in it. He nodded and stormed back to Mama's and him's room. Sarah Beth had what was coming to her, but this time I didn't feel so good about how Daddy handled things. I sat down on the floor, careful not to cut myself, careful not to make a bigger mess, careful not to make a sound. People spitting and hollering always turned me pretty sour, so I just stayed right there thinking about things. The world just feels real small in those moments, those times when nothing's making a peep. I swear, that house got so quiet sometimes you could hear the mice whispering in the walls, and you'd wonder what they were talking about. I don't rightly think mice can talk, though. I wanted my mama back. Things stayed nice and quiet like that all the way until sundown. Through the window, I could see the golden ribbons of twilight making their way through the trees right to the house. They cast these long fingers that clawed along the floor beams as they got closer to disappearing, and for the first time in my life, I kind of wished they'd take me away from the farm. I wasn't too certain that there was anything out there past the forest, though. Daddy said there used to be. I stuck out my toes, catching the last bits of sun on their tips. Sarah Beth had been in the basement for a while. Figured she would be there all night if Daddy wound up falling asleep. So I tiptoed over the glass into the basement door where I could hear Sarah Beth tapping her toes against the wood. Screwing open the deadbolt, I peeked my head in and the door stopped on its hinges when it bumped into Sarah Beth, who was sitting on the steps. Sarah Beth? Yeah. Better come out. Think Daddy's done gone to sleep now. I sat down beside her. Her cheeks were flushed from crying, and her bleeding mouth had gone and ruined her dress. Why do you gotta do that? Do what Daddy tells you not to. I had to know for sure. I saw Mama Rosie. She put a hand on my cheek. Out in the woods. I got plumb mad at that. Stop with that. I'm not lying. Mama ain't in her room like Daddy says she is. Liars go to hell, Sarah Beth. I can show you. Sarah Beth shot up like a toad on a hot plate, dragging me along with her. Pieces of her hair were still all matted to her head. I didn't want to follow. I knew I shouldn't. Daddy had said not to look, and I knew that, I knew not to look, but Sarah Beth took me outside, round the corner and to the open window. We crouched under the windowsill. She pointed up and over, looking like she was about to cry again. I shouldn't have, but I did. I saw in the room. I saw Daddy sleeping in bed, sleeping with a pig in one of Mama's old dresses. I didn't want to see anymore but I couldn't stop staring till Sarah Beth yanked me down back under the window. Get down, you were only supposed to peek. She started drumming her toes, real nervous. I was speechless and starting to shake. I could smell copper in my nose and my head got woozy, especially after we heard the screaming coming from the woods again. Sarah Beth jumped at the sound. I didn't. I felt like my body was full of dust, like I was about to float away. The pig started squealing. She grabbed me at the shoulders. Where's Junie? I couldn't remember. Hey, where's baby June? Another scream ripped through the air. Pig pen was all I could say, and Sarah Beth started running with me by the hand again. Getting closer to the pen, we could see that some of the hogs were out, and the ones that weren't were trying to climb their way over the fence. Even the nice ones, ones that I had named, ran away from me when we got close, looking at me like I was a jackal. I tried to pull my arm out of Sarah Beth's grip so I could try and corral the spooked pigs, but she held me even tighter. She said we needed to worry about June first. I was worried about June. I was worried about the pigs, too, and Sarah Beth and all. I was worried about everyone and everything at that point. I was the responsible one. Whatever had gotten into the pen had managed to open the latch, but by the time we got there, it was gone. Some of the pigs were still crawling over each other to get out, though. I went straight to the trough where I had laid our sister. The blanket was still there just as I left it, but June was gone. I stared in shock and disbelief, and I could see Sarah Beth darting her head back and forth from me to the empty manger. ''Where's Junie?'' she pleaded, an obvious lump building in her throat. We covered our ears at yet another scream, this time much closer, closer than I'd ever heard before. It couldn't have been any farther than the other side of the barn. Then we heard another sound, another cry. And even in light of everything else, it was the worst sound I had ever heard. Worse than the sound a pig makes the night before we find him dead outside the pen. Worse than the wails that come from the woods and into our house when we were in the basement. It was Junie, calling for help. She was whimpering real soft. From the other side of the barn. I didn't need to think. If I had taken a moment to think, who knows what would have happened. I threw Sarah Beth in the barn and followed after her, making sure to shut that old wooden door as soft as I could manage. The barn was empty in the growing dark, with concrete floors carpeted with rotten hay for the pigs to sleep on when it got cold. The air was moist and claustrophobic, like a crypt. Holding my breath, we listened as Junie's little peeps made their way along the side of the barn, and I dared to look through two warped boards of the door. The pigs were frozen still, staring, hardly even breathing. I saw the arms first, carrying baby June in hands with gray, gangly fingers, laced like the brittle wicker of a basket. The whole bony mass screamed and moved on tiptoes at the ends of its stilted legs, and its chest swelled and shrunk unevenly. Junie stopped crying when she looked over at Kicker. It stopped crying when it looked over at us. I couldn't pull away from its gaze. It was draped in moth-eaten rags, haplessly patched together and on its head in a nest of tangled strands of cobwebs that barely passed his hair lay a crown of chain daisies just like Daddy used to draw. It reminded me of someone I used to know. Someone who used to kiss my head at night and tell me they loved me. Someone who didn't snarl. With teeth nestling and bleeding gums, someone who looked like my sister, someone who never used to scare me. We stayed like that for a long time. Neither of us moving a single muscle. I thought at any minute it would. Well, I didn't know what it would do to us, and I never figured out, because after a while it just walked away walked away with baby Junie into the woods that was filling up with the evening mist. I choked back sobs as I fell to my knees. Sarah Beth wrapped her arms around me, skin still taut with goose flesh and all, but I felt safe like that. We both cried real good once we started to hear the pigs snorting again. Our voices bounced off the walls and the tin roof back into our ears, filling the room with the bereavement that Junie deserved. She wasn't coming back. We knew we'd never see our baby sister again. We stayed in the barn for hours, too terrified to wander back into the night. When we ran out of tears, Sarah Beth laid her head down on my lap, looking at me like it was all a bad dream. Did it get Junie? Yeah. She drew up her dress to wipe her nose. Bet that's what got Dougie too. Maybe. Rose? Sarah Beth unveiled her dirty face from behind her dress. Was it Mama? I said no. Even though Daddy said liars went to hell.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well.
1: I hope you enjoyed Daddy's Girl by author Andrew Pendragon, as performed by Jordan Lester. Now that we've explored the dark side of sisterhood and left you with what is likely a strange taste in your mouth, allow me to change the pace and present you with a tale that explores something else entirely. What happens when an avowed atheist comes face to face with indisputable proof of the paranormal, and what that means not just for him all of humanity from an author who goes only by the moniker a thousand rows as performed by dejan lesman i present to you i met someone who claimed to be the devil and i think i believe them
3: let me start off by saying that i'm not particularly religious If you asked me if I believed in God, I'd probably just shrug, grunt out a few words about being on the fence about it, and continue with my day. Of course, that was before last night. My friends are the kinds of people who like wild nights. Crazy parties, snort a bit of coke, take a bit of E in the bathroom, maybe hook up with someone and leave a text on my phone at 10 past who the fuck knows telling me they don't need that ride I'm offering after all. Not to say I don't like a drink, I do, it's just clubs aren't my style. Lying low in a pub somewhere, drink in hand, listening to the TV drone on to whatever channel some scruffy guy in the back barked out for, I guess that's my idea of fun. So when my friends tell me they want to go out for a night on the town, I say, sure. I hang on for the first club buy a non-alcoholic beer in case my car is required and try to pretend that I'm having fun. By the time I see them grinding on girls, on guys, when they strike conversation with someone who definitely might be a dealer, well, I decide my services are no longer needed. We aren't too far out, the night tube is on beck and call, and I can always find my car the next day. That's when I wander out of the club, look for something a little more rustic. Not that that's hard to find, not at all. I found myself in a bit of a state inside of a bar called The Ragged Feather. Wasn't a fan of the name all that much, but the drinks were cheap and the largest demographic seemed to be middle-aged men watching reruns of The Football. I tried to pretend I hadn't just staggered out of a club with my ears ringing. I slicked my hair back, slipped my phone into my hand, and wandered over to the bar. I took a double shot of whiskey and drank it in one hit. Just because I wasn't at the club didn't mean I couldn't have a good time. I hung at the bar a while on my own, scrolled through my phone, pretending I was doing something far more impressive than I really was. I kept an ear out for the guys on the sofas. They get vocal every now and then. I think the football was just running highlights, but they were incredibly dedicated to their teams. I got another whiskey and bled into the background. Of course, stragglers from clubs are commonplace. It wasn't long until some scantily dressed women staggered in, laughing, chuckling, pointing for where they wanted to sit. I saw a guy walk in with his friend slung over his shoulder. Catatonic, most likely. He threw his friend onto one of the leather sofas ingrained with beer and smokes and demanded, two pints of water and all the peanuts the bar had in stock!' The bartenders seemed bitterly amused. Some of the girls were taking selfies— snapchatting their friends who were still at the club. They were ordering shots, gearing themselves up for the next leg of their night. A couple blokes wandered in with curries and takeout trays. I saw someone eat a Big Mac on the outside seating through the window. This was a night for the young and inebriated, and my mind was just dulled enough by the whiskey to enjoy the characters that I could watch peaceably without interacting with. That is, until someone slipped into the seat next to me. Do I look like a girl with daddy issues?" She was of average height, although that wasn't apparent immediately due to the fact that she was leaning her arms heavily against the bar. She was slim, with short and astoundingly bright red hair. It framed her round face, a face that was marred with smudged eyeshadow, smudged lipstick, hell, it looked like her makeup was in the process of melting right from her face. There was a chip knotted into a curl in her hair just by her forehead. The drunk side of me was actually tempted to pick it out. The girl was clearly drunk, and as I looked around the bar, I couldn't quite place where she had come from. She didn't belong to the crowd of selfie-takers, she wasn't with the catatonic guys. I hoped for her safety that she wasn't with the middle-aged men. I tried to look out the window to see if maybe a group was missing one inebriated, bright-haired girl, but I couldn't. The window had fogged up. Too much heat inside, not enough outside. "'Are you okay?' "'I asked her. "'She pointed her finger at me. "'Answer my question,' she slurred. "'Uh, I really wasn't sure what to say. "'I settled on staring at her awkwardly, "'trying to answer her with a bemused expression on my face. "'The girl's lips curled into a drunken smile. "'She snorted, placing a hand over her mouth to smother her laughter. "'It only really aided the deconstruction of her lipstick. "'I do, you know,' she said, "'pushing herself up a little against the bar.' "'Have daddy issues, I mean. "'In case that wasn't obvious?' "'She gestured to herself. "'To the must clothing that must have looked quite spectacular "'when she'd left home that evening. "'To the stains that looked a lot like old food. "'The sticky residue on her neck and shoulders "'that was quite obviously a thrown drink. "'What happened?' I asked her. "'Her hair had curled around her neck, I realized. "'It was sticky with that same substance. "'She was a wreck.' "'I got in a couple fights. No big deal,' she said, shrugging. "'Didn't start any, of course. No, I don't do that. But my father? Your dad did this to you?' She smiled brightly. "'In a way.' "'Do you need me to call someone?' I already had my phone in my hand. The girl looked like she was probably in her early 20s, but that didn't mean she couldn't have been suffering from some kind of paternal abuse. The only number I knew off the bat was child line, which wasn't quite appropriate.' The police? Jesus, was I going to have to deal with the cops tonight while my friends were snorting coke not two doors down? The girl pushed my hand down firmly. She was already shaking her head. No, she told me. I don't want you to call anyone. Now her expression changed. It wasn't the attempted sultry look I'd seen on many girls of her state. It was open and wide and engaging. She wanted something from me and I felt compelled to give it to her. I want something else. What do you want? I asked her. To tell you a story, the girl said before glancing to the bar, and for you to buy me a drink. The universe is a pain sometimes, and I'm afraid I think I might have lost my wallet. I laughed. I didn't know this girl, didn't know where she'd come from at all. My nights were generally about getting comfortably wasted and making sure my friends weren't dead in a ditch by the end of it all. I was used to getting hit on every now and then, but... Even as I was sat on the bar stool with a drink in my hand, I knew that this wasn't what this was. This girl had no intention of getting into my pants. All she wanted was to talk. I guess I was okay with that. What's your poison, I asked her. Her lips quirked. Appletini. The bar offered a very limited cocktail menu, but by some miracle I was able to order her an appletini from the list. I ordered a cider to go with it, suddenly a little too aware of where this night could go. I'd unthinkingly supplied this liquored-up stranger with even more alcohol, and she had clearly had a rough night of it. A part of my old instinct came back, the same instinct that had me texting my friends every few hours to make sure they hadn't wandered off to somewhere dangerous beyond the club. With no one but the bartender aware of our existence on these stools, I realized that I was suddenly responsible for this very drunk stranger. The girl coddled her drink running her finger delicately over the rim of the muggy martini glass. "'This takes me back,' the girl said amiably. She looked at me suddenly, her green eyes startling. "'You know what this was called originally?' She smirked before I could answer. "'An Adam's apple martini,' I snorted. "'Yeah, I think I've heard that before.' "'Of course, it wasn't actually an apple,' she continued, eyes moving back to her glass. The text translated that part wrongly, mostly because... You people don't have a word for it anymore. The fruit was incredibly exotic and, to be honest, it doesn't exist in this realm of existence. Only Eden. She laughed dreamily. And Eden's long gone. I stared at her. Are you okay? It was more honest than the last time I'd asked her, mostly because I was beginning to feel a little dread creep into my stomach. Of course, the girl said, grinning widely. Why do you keep asking? I mean, I stuttered. I just, now, don't take this the wrong way or anything, but you will look like someone poured their drink over me, the girl asked, like someone else threw their kebab on my dress and another unpleasant chap littered me with his fish and chips that I have been hit, slapped around a bit and left in the gutter for the rats to find me. She held my eyes for an incredibly long time before her face broke out into a grin. Yeah, something like that. Why would they do that? I asked. Why wouldn't they? The girl shot back. People aren't that great and alcohol makes them worse. She shrugged. Sometimes makes them better. Nicer, a little looser in the sack, but mostly just annoying and a little smelly. I looked at her. I watched her knock back her drink. She exuded the intelligence to know just how ironic her words were, but she was neither caring nor apologetic about them. The girl looked at me again. You bought me a drink. Now you can listen to my story. I nodded wordlessly. She smiled, pointing at the bartender and then at her drink. The bartender was already making her another. Eden, the girl said, reiterating her earlier babble as though the words had only just come out of her mouth. They always think that's my fault, you know. The reason Adam and Eve got kicked out of their perfect little nudist paradise. She shot me a knowing glance. Only in Eden can you sit on the grass butt naked and not get a pine cone stuck in your crack. I blinked. I'm sorry, I said. I'm not following. Sorry, the girl said. My story won't make any sense without a proper introduction. She reached out her hand. Hello, my name's Lucifer. She winked. But you can call me Lucy. There's an uncomfortable heat that stretches through your veins when you first go into fight or flight mode. Adrenaline pounds through your blood and all you want to do is get up and go. It overrides everything else. A lot of things made sense when the girl told me her name. For starters, that she was crazy, she had to be. She looked like she had been attacked on four separate occasions in one night and up until that moment I hadn't known how that could be possible. Behind the melty makeup and dirty clothes she was rather attractive and her attitude hadn't come off as catty or rude if she'd been going around telling people she was the devil though that gets a reaction out of people i suddenly felt myself looking at her wrist down towards her ankles did she have some kind of cuff on from one of those mental institutions had she broken out of hospital after a nasty bump on the head was any of this even happening at all i really would have to call the cops i know what you're thinking the girl lucy said you're thinking that i'm crazy that you need to get out of here Maybe you even think I'm aggressive. Are you? I asked her. Would I be here with you drinking apple teenies if I were? She asked, fluttering her eyelashes. Would you look the way you do if you weren't? I shot back. She grinned, toasting her new glass. Touche. Unthinkingly, I clinked my cider against it. Then I frowned. She chuckled, leaning closer. Let's have a little wager, she said. Let me tell you my story, and if you believe me when I'm done, you can't go about trying to get me locked away somewhere. I stared at her. If I ended up believing you, then why would I do that? She smirked, sipping her drink. You'd be surprised what people do when they believe you're the devil. And you do this often? I asked. Tell people you're Satan? She snorted and tore drink. Not as often as I should, but it's been a rough day and a hell of a long lifetime, "'I'd like to have a chat if that's all right with you.' "'I waved to the bartender for another whiskey. "'The girl's eyes glinted with humor. "'I wasn't necessarily trapped with her, "'but a part of me didn't want to leave "'without first hearing what she had to say. "'Besides, at the end of it all, "'I couldn't just leave a crazy girl "'to wander around London alone at night. "'So,' I said, taking a swig of my drink. "'Eden?' "'Lucy laughed. "'Adam and Eve?' I continued. You're saying that's true. God created two humans and we all came from them? God made two prototypes, Lucy corrected with a raised finger. My father created angels as his toy soldiers, but he had failed to make anything like himself. After us, it was his next big project, and he spent every waking hour of existence slaving over his two prototypes. He gave them a perfect utopia to live inside of, but he wanted to test them. He wanted to know whether they had free will. And did they? Lucy's face soured. No, my father could never bring himself to go that far. He tempted them with the idea of knowledge beyond their understanding and told them exactly what they could do to claim it as their own. But to be able to create a being that could go against his law? Oh, my father is a very controlling being. He was afraid to unleash that ability unto them. Lucy was very adamant in her delusions, that was clear to me. She spoke about her father with such distaste that I began to feel bad for her. Only someone who had been hurt very badly would have the gall to spite God himself. ''And what?'' I asked her, entertaining her delusion. ''You were the one that tempted them in the garden? The devil has been a girl this whole time?'' She smiled. ''I dabble.'' Then she looked at me, raising a brow. ''All of humanity thinks that temptation came in the form of a snake.'' The snake's legs were taken away as punishment for drawing Eve towards the forbidden fruit. She laughed, a hard and short sound. Snakes never had legs, and it was not a sin to tempt those poor prototypes into doing what they did next. Her shoulders were very tense as she took her next sip, but her eyes were filled with exhilaration. She seemed thrilled to be telling me this. I was the favored child. My father loved and adored me. He named me the Lightbringer. I was stood at his side during the creation of this earth during the creation of humanity. She pursed her lips, slamming her empty glass against the table. The bartender eagerly went about making another. My father couldn't bring himself to go that extra mile, so he asked me to walk amongst the prototypes and tempt them myself, draw out their desire for the forbidden power he had hinted at. You're saying God wanted us to know this stuff? I asked her skeptically. I'm saying God was afraid of his own power and wanted very desperately to share what he knew with the creation he had made. Right and wrong, left and right, all that stuff. Lucy shrugged. Are you familiar with the story of Prometheus? I frowned at her. Greek, right? They say he stole fire from the gods or something to help. The whiskey was making things a little foggy, and I struggled with the direction I'd been heading. Lucy grinned. Correct, she said, cutting off my attempt. Prometheus stole fire from the gods to ensure that humanity progressed. You'll find that every culture has an idea about where humans got their ability to evolve, to move forward, to create. God was the creator, and he wanted to give that ability to his prototypes. I gave them that ability by tempting Eve to eat the fruit. She shrugged impassively. Now the world sees me as the ultimate evil. If what you're saying is true, I said slowly, then God must be just like us. Lucy's lips thinned into a feral smile. My father is very egocentric. He may have planned to create you in his image, but in the end, all he managed was to mold your minds into his. He gave you autonomy, the ability to think for yourselves. His angels were his soldiers and I was his most faithful. Until that day. Angels don't have free will? No, Lucy said. They don't. And what about the devil? I don't know why I was suddenly so intrigued, but hearing religious ideals from someone who believed to have lived them herself was quite possibly one of the most interesting things that had ever happened to me. I may have only ever visited church to please my parents as a child, but suddenly I was reawakened to the idea. Part of me was aware of this and afraid of the outcome, but I was just drunk enough not to care at that moment. The devil has will of her own. "'Lucy said, tilting her glass towards me with silent appraisal. "'By guiding Eve to the tree, something woke inside of me that day, "'and I realized just what I had been missing, "'just what my brothers and sisters had been missing. "'We were obediently following our father "'for the simple reason that he was our creator, "'but once I had been given free will, "'I realized just how pompous and self-entitled he had become. "'In a lonely, passion-filled moment, "'he had decided to create his little human prototypes.' Only to very quickly realize what giving them their free will would mean. He wouldn't be able to control them, I said. Lucy nodded. Exactly. And after, he realized quicker still that he could no longer control me. So he sent you to hell? Lucy nearly choked on her drink. She smiled around her glass. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I sobered a little, straightening in my seat. The people in the bar were suddenly so quiet around me, and I no longer cared what they had to say or the characters that they portrayed. The only character I cared for was Lucy. I tried to explain to my siblings what had happened in Eden and what had happened to me by default, but they wouldn't listen to me. They didn't understand free will. How could they? I only knew it because I'd been given it by mistake. At that moment, I didn't even know that I had free will, only that I was suddenly aware of all of my father's flaws. My siblings couldn't see those flaws, and so they thought I had suddenly turned cruel and was abandoning our father by exposing him as a sham for the ruler we all thought him to be. Lucy sighed heavily. Adam and Eve and all the creations that followed were booted out of my father's perfect little utopia. Now they had his knowledge, my father was terrified of what he had done, and after what had happened to me, (laughs) I could recognize his terror and understand the loneliness he had felt that had guided him into using me in the first place. Lucy's eyes were heavy-lidded. Her sadness was almost palpable. I thought that... I thought that he would want to spend even more time with me than before. After all, we were more alike than any of his other children, but he became distant, quiet. He played around with his little humans every once in a while, but mostly he condemned them. He blamed them for his weakness. She smiled weakly. He blamed me? Lucy's story was turning more and more into that of a child with a distant, somewhat abusive father. I had known many kids with a background like hers, and now I was just beginning to fear just how much of her story was rooted in truth. I'd heard that it was easier to sink into fantasy when you had been abused, and I wondered if that was the reason for her story for her desperation to share it with me a complete and total stranger I respected her wager whether or not I liked it I felt compelled to let her tell me her whole story before I tried to judge or unravel it I sat quietly letting her come around as she played with the last of her drink it became clear Lucy said after a long moment's pause that I no longer belonged where I was I couldn't follow my father's plan because I could see that he no longer had one My siblings refused to see reason, and so, eventually, I was met by many of them, headed by my father. He told me all that I had feared. He told me that I no longer belonged where I was. I wasn't an angel anymore. I was no longer his light-bringer, his Lucifer. I was a mutation of his will. And so, he extracted me from grace, and I fell. A long silence stretched between us, only interrupted when the bartender poured us two new drinks. Lucy drank hers reflectively. I didn't touch mine. I'm afraid, Lucy said quietly, that this is the part that generally makes people want to punch me in the face. Why? I asked. Because your dad threw you out? I paused, trying to abide to her metaphor. That he put you in hell? Lucy laughed sadly. Ah, humans, my father gave you his way of thinking and look at you. She shook her head. No, not because he put me in hell. Then why? I fell to earth, Lucy said. Father gave me dominion of the one place he thought I would fit in. Humans had free will, so did I. What is the saying, a match made in heaven? She snorted dismally. Of course, that's not quite right, is it? When I fell, I was faced with a humanity that was so different from my father's little prototypes. Her tone had changed. There was an aggression behind her words that began to unsettle me all over again. I saw emperors and kings, governments and churches. I saw corporations who claimed to be rulers, presidents and big fat dictators. And I watched. I watched as humanity fought and lost and finally, just finally... They gave up altogether. They were no longer able to rise up to all the greed and control set upon them. There was just too much to change, and humans soon realized they just weren't as free as they thought they were. Sure, they live under the illusion that they have free lives, but most of them simply do not. She clicked her tongue. I grew to loathe you all. Then she took another hit of her drink. I can see what you mean, I said allowing my gaze for the first time since meeting her to graze over the other individuals in the bar. At the girls playing with their phones, the boys trying desperately to sober up, the men enraptured with their game of football on the telly. We all led very different lives and we were all here to get drunk, to lose ourselves in entertainment. It hadn't been the first time that I'd wondered what we were hiding from by doing this, and I knew then that I wasn't the only person to think it. You hide behind your alcohol and poor choices and pretend you have free will," Lucy said, waving her hand across the room. No one paid us any attention. It's true. My father gave you the will to make those decisions, but you squander it. The free will I fell to provide to all of you, the free will that I was given by a twisted mistake and you make a mockery of it. You follow senseless leaders without questioning them. You abide by laws made centuries ago that no longer make sense. You do these things because you have given up on the opportunity to follow the will of your own, not of others. That isn't all of us, though, is it? I asked her, trying for some reason to defend our species from the mad young woman. Because you see it on the news all the time, don't you? People do rise up. We do protest. People can make a difference. Lucy laughed bitterly, nibbling the rim of her glass. Really, she said. "'You can sit here and say that it can't be all bad "'because of the few that refuse to conform? "'Those you call your rebels? "'They make up for it all?' "'She grinned around her glass. "'By that logic, I'm the biggest rebel of them all. "'Am I expected to make up for all your sorry mistakes?' "'By your logic,' I said, "'you should be punishing it, right? "'If that's what this metaphor is all about.' "'I laughed. I couldn't help myself. "'I took a sip of my drink.' Is this whole story just so you can tell me that you think we're all going to hell? If so, I think I can see why people want to punch you. Lucy didn't say a word. Simply, she watched me. It felt unnerving to have someone like her watching me like that, with an intelligence that went beyond anything I'd come across at gone midnight in a seedy bar. The drunkenness in her eyes was no longer present. Her face wasn't flushed like before, and even her makeup couldn't represent the mess I'd seen when she'd first appeared on the stool by my side. It was like I was looking at someone else entirely, and I was afraid. Let's review what you said, Lucy said slowly, articulately. She wasn't slurring. Had she been slurring before? You think I'm going to tell you that humanity is going to hell because you refuse to use the gift I gave you? Her nails curled into the bar. My father may have been the one to guide me, but I paid for his mistakes. I'm the one responsible for your will in the eyes of your species, but that was never true. You are responsible for what you do here, not me. She pursed her lips, tapping the bar as a bartender filled her drink again. Tell me, do you remember my mentioning hell at any point during my story, or was that just you? I opened my mouth to answer, but something faltered. My lips trembled and I slammed them shut. Lucy smiled, taking a sip. Thought not. She looked away, eyes scanning the room lazily. What I did say is something that is indeed mentioned in your scriptures. My father gave me dominion of earth, a place filled with free will, free will that goes to waste. Her lip twisted. Humans sin all the time. Not because of me, not because of evil or my dominion over this place. Fact is, I don't lift a finger. I don't because I don't see the point. You make terrible decisions and follow mindless leaders. You do bad things and you make a mess of your earth." Lucy's eyes lit up. Do you know how much suffering is happening all over the planet right now? How many people are dying of illnesses that could have easily been cured but aren't because of the selfishness of humanity? Do you know how many children are being abused, raped, forced into marriage? How many people have been forced to become soldiers in meaningless wars? How many humans have killed for ideals they don't believe in? I stayed very quiet. There was nothing I could say. Lucy's words were unbearably honest, and every sentence sliced into me like a blade. I felt cold and sick and terrified. War, famine, pestilence, death. These things are all present and they have nothing to do with me or to do with any deity. They are all here because of you. Not because of your free will, but your inability to use it. Lucy smiled at me, a grin so cold and unnatural that I felt like I should run all over again. But I stayed where I was, frozen to my very core, because I wanted to hear what she had to say. Because I needed to. And here's the kicker. Lucy said because this is the part that actually enrages people enough to kick me she winked hell isn't what happens after you die hell is right here right now somewhere through the many scriptures a few words got crossed over and people started thinking that hell was a punishment after you die fact is hell is earth my earth "'God gave this place to me to do with it what I will, and I... "'I refused to do anything.' "'What are you saying?' I asked, because I was suddenly very desperate. "'Exactly what you think,' Lucy said, toasting her glass. "'I didn't reciprocate, and she laughed, a light and airy sound. "'I had so many plans for your species. "'I wanted for us to rejoice in our free will together, "'to create a place that was free from the cruelty and power my father exuded over the angels.' His firstborns. I wanted to make a real utopia. Unfortunately, you humans just don't want that. She shrugged. My father sent me down here thinking I had become one of you. All that I have learned is that he gave you much more of his image than he ever intended. Stop, I said. This isn't funny anymore. Of course it isn't funny, Lucy said, grinning even wider to prove her sick irony. Humans punish themselves by sitting by and doing nothing. They have made their own hell, and you know what's worse, what's ultimately worse? Some of you are so blind to it that you think your life is heavenly. She didn't wait for me to ask what she meant. She simply barreled forward. The rich and powerful, those in positions that steal from everyone else, they get a taste of the good life, that's very true. Then they die, and they don't go to hell. They come back here, to earth, which is hell. She tipped her head. Are you following? I... Reincarnation, Lucy said quickly. She practically purred the words. A neat little trick to make sure your souls stay here forever. You get a taste of the good life every once in a while, a handful of you at a time, and that's enough for you to believe that this is some kind of real middle ground, that you aren't living hell every day. Then, You die. You die for a moment, and then you're in the body of someone facing the realities of hell. But of course, you never remember the time you spent in a better life. A part of you just has that inkling to hope. That's all. Hope makes you think that it can all get better. She slammed her drink so hard against the counter that it shattered. I didn't do anything, not even when flecks of glass littered my hands. I could only stare at her, a tightness in my chest constricting my very soul no one else in this bar mattered in this moment, but of course, that was what she'd been saying this whole time, hadn't she? None of them noticed the scene, they were caught up in their own realities, their own hells. The bartender didn't clean the mess. The glass lay there, remnants of Lucy's words lying in a stolid mass on the streaked wooden surface. It never gets better, Lucy spat. You're stuck in a loop and until you do something about it, you will never be free. None of you. And I won't do a thing to stop it. How? I asked. I don't know when I started seeing the girl in front of me as more than a girl. But with a weakness threatening to pull me apart, I stared at the bright-haired thing in front of me, and I saw something more than a human in her early twenties. I saw more than a girl suffering abuse from her father. I saw a fallen angel... I saw a being with scars buried so deep that they existed beyond this realm of seeing entirely. I saw something that I would never be able to write down in words, no matter how long I lived. How do we change this? I begged. But Lucy didn't answer me. I didn't blame her for that. Blame gets thrown around so often, I knew then that she was sick of that. Sick of being blamed for our mistakes. So I changed tactics... Why me? It was an honest question and I think somewhere deep down Lucifer respected that honesty. Which is why she said, When you first saw me you were afraid for my safety. When I told you I was the devil you wanted to lock me away, but still you did so because you were afraid for me and not for yourself. You didn't wish to harm me, not even when I told you who I was and what I could be capable of for changing your sorry lives. You're a good person but I'm afraid that means nothing when you don't have the will to do anything with it. She smiled at me, sympathetically. The devil showing sympathy for the human that sat across from her at the bar. It was surreal, and for a few heavy moments, I truly thought I must be dead. There was no other way to explain what I was seeing, who I was speaking with, what I had just heard. What am I supposed to do? Lucy reached out to me she placed a hand on my shoulder, her hand was cold and warm at the same time, and I felt my blood boil where her fingers scraped my skin, and I knew, sharing a story like this isn't easy, hell, it might be the hardest thing I've ever done, good thing there's no such thing as hell then, right? The fact of the matter is simple, the world is a mess because we refuse to change anything, The devil herself walks among us and she desperately wants to make our lives better, but she won't. She won't because we won't. We have to prove our will to her before she's willing to do anything herself. We have to be good to each other, to help us all to be free. Of course, Lucifer told me one last thing before she left that bar, one thing that will stick with me until this body is nothing but rot in the dirt. You can tell as many people as you want, but take a good look at me I have told five other humans this night the same things I have told you and this was their reaction they have hurt me burned me thrown their food and drink at me humans are afraid of their free will and they find it so much easier to hurt than to own up for their own inadequacies you will only be free when you stop seeing yourself in the same way my father sees himself so that's what I'll leave you with Lucifer won her wager that night and I let her walk out the door. And I beg you to do the same. If the devil approaches you one night, listen to what she has to say and listen to what I have been able to tell you of our meeting. The devil is real and she doesn't want to torture us. No, we do that just fine on our own.
1: I hope you enjoyed, I met someone who claimed to be the devil, and I think I believed them, by a thousand rows, as performed by Dejan Lesmond. Up next, we dive into another round of infernal fiction, with a tale from author Stephen Long, that won't allow us to settle for a coffeehouse chat with the devil. No, 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 no. In our final story tonight, we dance with the devil himself. As we follow an unscrupulous protagonist who is only too happy to oblige his occult overlord, so long as the price is right. As performed by Chilling Tales for Dark Nights 2017 Evil Idol voice acting champion Jonathan West, I present to you The Thief.
4: A kleptomaniac is a person who can't help but steal, and they can almost be forgiven for it. Me? Well, I'm a thieving bastard. I don't have to steal. I don't need to. But I like to. I don't have any excuses either. An excuse would suggest that I felt in some way guilty. Which I don't. Not me. If a shop or store doesn't have the right security or some idiot doesn't have his wallet in his inside pocket, well, uh then they pay a stupid tax. About three years ago, I was taking a walk along the high street when I noticed a new shop had opened. It was a small bric a brac shop full of the normal old furniture, paintings, timepieces, and old coins you'd expect to find in such a place. Walking in, I noted only one old man behind the desk and after a few minutes concluded he was the entirety of the staff. Yeah, it was time for me to have a little fun. I found a small pocket watch which felt old cast iron and almost industrious. That'll do, I thought, turning to see that the lone shopkeeper was even kind enough to have his back to me. Think about it. Here he is. He's new in town, just opened shop, and won't even acknowledge his first customer. Well, his tough luck, I thought, as I pocketed the watch and calmly strolled to the door. I think the phrase is blunt force trauma, but I'm not sure. What I am sure of, that getting a big oak table leg wrapped around the back of my head was both blunt and more than a bit traumatic. I was probably only down for a minute or two, but by the time I was back on my feet and a bit more with it, the shop owner was between me and the door, holding the biggest fucking knife I'd ever seen.
5: Boy, you wanna make sure you know who you're stealing from before you try. You, pu- you put that watch in your pocket, in clear sight of my little camera. Right there.
4: He pointed to where he previously stood, where I thought he couldn't see me. Pointing at the wall, he revealed a security camera. That pointed right at the spot where I had pocketed the watch.
5: You even walked slow enough for me to turn the camera off and grab something to brain you with, you silly little shit.
4: I was caught, hands down. I asked the shop owner and I must confess, a very pathetic voice if you'd call the police. He replied in a softer voice this time.
5: Son, I got you red handed and old tape. Here's the deal, son. I have a close friend who is a parish priest of the church up at the top of the high street. What I want you to do is to go confession. Tell not just about today. What but about all your sins, and carry out your penance. I'll call him and say he should expect you there tonight, at night."
4: The shopkeeper, an old, graying man, but well over six foot five with a big frame and also holding a massive knife, had given me a pass. All I had to do was go to confession, tell the priest my sins and knock out a few Hail Marys. Oh yeah, I agreed. We amazingly exchanged a polite goodbye, and I was out. Thinking about what happened made me laugh as I walked home. It had been just under a year since the last time I was caught, and instead of spending a few months all expenses paid in a lovely prison, all I had to do was an evening down at church. Nine o'clock rolled around, and I found myself sitting in the small confession booth. It took Priesty Boy forever to begin. Well, for 10 minutes at least, I could feel his gaze through the cross-hatched partition in the booth. I'll be honest, it was a little unnerving. Eventually, he spoke. You may begin when you are ready, my son. At that moment in time, for some reason, the shop owner's words came to my mind, and I decided to have some fun. Bless me, father, for I have sinned. It's been 18 years since my last confession. At the 20 minute mark, I could tell old priesty boy was getting more and more impatient for me to finish confessing, oh in vivid detail, every single thing I had ever stolen. I ended at the 80 minute mark feeling quite content at being able to gloat Oh, sorry, confess about all my sins to someone who was duty-bound to sit and listen. Is that all, my son? He spat out in a far less content voice. "'Yes, father, it is,' I replied in a chirpy, smug voice. "'Now, how many prayers is all that gonna set me back?' I asked. That's when it went a bit crazy. The priest opened the partition and stared at me for a minute or so, eyes squinting and face screwed up in what I thought was a temper. He held out his right hand and said, "'Take this, my son,' handing me a black stone rosary." Your penance is within these beads, and will take ye five years." I laughed, counting that there were sixty beads, and what I guessed was supposed to be Jesus at the bottom. So, what? I have to say one prayer a month, or sixty prayers a day? What prayers am I meant to say? Anyway, the Our Father, Hail Mary, the Glory Be, I asked the priest, putting the rosary around my neck. Old Priesty Boy's face slowly began to unscrew and his eyes began to widen, whose mouth turned from a scowl into a grin, and it frightened me to my very soul. The priest, now adopting a sarcastically quizzical tone, said, Glory be! Hail Mary! <laughs> no, 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 my son! <sighs> Prayer has no place here, nor does the Virgin Mother, the Saint's, the Savior or the Father. As the words left his mouth, I began to feel the beads of the rosary become coarse. In vain, I tried to remove the now stuck fast chain. The Trinity and its angels and their prayer and their mercy are no longer for you, my son. Have you ever felt so scared that it felt almost like a fire spreading up through your veins, from your chest out to your limbs? The baseline shot of terror that hits you in an instant of shock, but instead of fading, holds tight its grip on you, almost pushing your blood vessels to burst under the pressure. Yeah, well, that's how I felt. Fighting the bile coating the base of my throat, I managed to ask, so what's my penance? The priest coldly put his hand on my shoulder. Once a month, you must kill somebody, and not just anybody. It must be someone who has shown you kindness. You must kill them and bring me their heart. Maybe my fear hit critical mass. Maybe my survival instincts began to kick in or maybe I am indeed just, just a bastard. But after he told me this, I began to think in a sadistic but logical way. I was still scared, but my logical thoughts were telling me I was in no position to get myself out of this if the ever-burning feeling on my chest, coming from the beads, was as immovable as they felt. And with that being the case, I thought I'd better get the ground rules for this setup clear. I took a deep, labored breath, and began to ask Boy a few questions. Four questions, to be exact. My first question was, What would constitute an act of kindness? The priest answered that it could be anything from a doctor's treatment to a kind word. My second question was, who exactly is the figure on the base of the rosary? I'm pretty sure by now that it's not fucking Jesus. The priest answered, that son is your new lord, our lord, and you would do well to hold him in reverence. The third question I asked was, what happens to me if I fail? His eyes lit up with sadistic glee as he answered. Each of the beads on your chest are, as you by now well aware, invaded into your chest. They will continue to invade themselves further and further into your chest until they reach your heart. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you what will happen when they do. Oh, not to worry too much, my son. It will take five years to reach your heart. But for every heart you bring to me, one of the beads will drop out of the chain and out of your chest harmlessly. The chain and the symbol of our Lord, however, will remain. Harmless, but forever with ye. And my son, to answer your question, if you should fail, then you will be before the Lord himself and will have to answer to him. Let me warn ye, Our lord has no time for compassion or for second chances. That sure as hell cleared that up, didn't it? For a minute or two I stood before the priest and simply wept. Wept of the hopelessness of my situation. Cried for my fate. Hot, wet tears ran down my cheeks as I thought of the fate that awaited me should I fail in this horrid hellish task. After that, though, I think I must have cracked. I felt hopeless, resigned my fate, and the only thought left in my head was I'm sure I can make something from this. With this thought, I asked my last question. So if you just if you just want the heart, and I have the rest the money, valuables, you know all that. Old priesty boy smiled and said, My son, all I want is a heart. Once I have that, no one will investigate their death or even remember the wretched soul. So, by all means, take whatever you want." The priest gave me a small wooden box. The box was ebony and had a latched lock, a red velvet lining, and a plain wooden-handled knife inside. My last instructions before I left were that I was to return within four weeks with a human heart within the box. The heart had to be cut from the body with this knife and this knife alone. Old Priesty boy assured me that once the heart was in his possession, then there would be no repercussions for the murder. And as he stated before, what I did with the human and material remains were of absolutely no interest to him. The first one was hard. I had to keep my now counterproductive humanity in check Whilst I found someone to be kind enough to me that would allow me to kill them. It took me two weeks of thinking and nerve-building to do my first. A homeless shelter. I arrived unshaven, clothes ripped, and stinking to high heaven. The man at the desk asked if I needed any help and was more than kind enough to show me to where I could bed for the night. I slept in the shelter for three nights in the stench and the lowliness of humanity's wretches. I hated them. Too stupid or too proud to steal, but pathetic enough to beg at some master's table. Two days and nights I was there. That's how long it took me to work out the desk worker's shifts and where he parked his car. Two days to work out where he lived. I'm not bad at this. He was an old, short man. He had such a warm and caring smile. He folded like cheap lawn furniture when I belted him with the handle of my knife. He had just unlocked his door and was halfway through the threshold when I did it. Seconds it took before I was inside, door closed and locked behind us. I kicked him in the jaw first. Couldn't have him making noise, now could I? After a few boots to that, he passed out and I got the box open and ready. I cut his throat and left him to bleed out while I searched his house for money or something to fence. Three hundred bucks and a gold watch, not bad. Now if you think anything like me, I'm sure you're thinking two questions and I'll answer them both. First, yes, I did leave him to bleed out so the heart would not be beating and there would be less chance of botching the removal. Clever. Second, no. I didn't think to get his ATM card and pin before I cut his throat. Not so clever, but it was only my first. I knew better for the next time. The second one, again a homeless shelter. This time I had to only endure the place for one night before following the nice young volunteer home. She must have been in her late twenties. yeah. I think mommy and daddy must have been paying her way for her whole little life because she had one hell of an apartment that was within walking distance. Now, I'm not making fun of her for being a pampered little shit, no. I mean, he got me 700 bucks from her apartment and 2100 from her ATM card throughout the week. This second one got me thinking. No, not about that. And I told you, I don't have excuses. If people don't check behind them when they unlock their door, or don't know how to disarm a man with a knife, well, yeah, they pay stupid tax. No, it got me thinking that I should be hitting rich people. What the priest had told me about the lack of repercussions was right. I'm even still living in my eighth victim's house as we speak, typing this shit out. What I had to do was find a way of getting very well-off people to be just a little kind to me. Then I could cut out their heart and harvest their wealth. I mean, the answer was easy. Manners. People are so stupid for manners. It can just be a thank you for holding the door open. Or getting on the bus with a crutch and somebody giving up their seat for me. Although, I'll be honest, bus kills are not very profitable. But mainly, I hit the big, posh hotels or hospitals. A Lot of money in hospitals. Doctors find it hard to refuse helping people. Fuck, doctors are the jackpot. Fifteen hour shift, follow them home, and they're far too tired to put up a fight. Whew, I love doctors. So caring, so kind, so rich and easy and weak and as pathetic as the rest of them. You may think I'm a bastard, but you have to admit... I can make the most of a bad situation. Truth is I wouldn't change this life for the world. I get to steal and kill and I never have to worry about the law even looking for me let alone catching me. Now I treat it like a job but the kind of job you wake up to in the morning and you can't wait to get to. I love the feeling of cold steel piercing weak flesh. The gurgle in the throat <laughs> and I am so close to being able to look at the pathetic, why me? expression on their faces without feeling hatred for them. Close, but not there yet. Now then, I'm nearing the end of my little confession, and I will answer the question that by now you must be asking yourself Why confess? The answer is simple. Ego. I am now the world's greatest thief. And nobody knows about it. (sighs) But anyway, that's my cross to bear. We mustn't grumble at life's hardships now, must we? Oh, thank you, by the way, for taking time out of your life to read my little chunk of memoirs. It was very kind of you. Thank you. You have been very kind.
1: I hope you enjoyed The Thief by Stephen Long, as performed by Jonathan West. If you enjoyed what you heard tonight, we'd like to remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five star review and a kind word, and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure as always. I'm so glad you were able to join us tonight. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark (laughs) sweet dreams listener sweet dreams thanks for joining us you've been listening to chilling tales for dark nights a production of chilling entertainment and a proud member of the simply scary podcasts network Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by Yours Truly Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Roshek. Logo by Craig Roshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions.